0: Welcome to A Reason for Hope, your question connection with the entire Word of God. We would love for you to join in our conversation. Simply follow us on our Facebook page at Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. If you have a question, email or text us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. Now here's your host, pastor, author, and Bible teacher, Scott Richards, along with his right-hand man, Sean Richards.
1: Well, a very good afternoon, morning, or evening to you. Welcome to this edition of A Reason for Hope. A reason for hope for those of you happening across our broadcast for the very first time is our daily journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. And that's obviously where you come in. It is the questions you send along to us that determine the content, of each and every edition of A Reason for Hope. So feel free to get involved with our conversation. Uh, Get in touch with us through one of our many media platforms. And any question you have about the Bible, any question about applying the Bible to your life, any question about maybe defending your faith in the Bible in these increasingly skeptical times, uh, questions about uh, looking at life through Uh, a biblical lens, especially in these times that can create so much confusion. Uh, We are more than happy to talk about the events of the day or even the events of tomorrow through biblical prophecy. But wherever we go, entirely up to you. Your questions determine the content of each and every edition of A Reason for Hope. As always, joined here by my right-hand man, protege, all-around good guy, Sean Richards. Sean, how can people get their questions to us?
0: Well, if you're joining us on Reach Radio or one of our radio affiliates, you can email us your questions through questionsforhope at gmail.com. Note that's available 24-7 and for the use of sending us your Bible questions. But if you want to clarify proper spelling of that, feel free at any time to also send us your questions through social media. Our YouTube page is A Reason for Hope, and our Facebook page is Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. But since we do not control when or why we are taken down from those platforms or even impeded in some way, We want to encourage you to make our website your main ministry media meeting place where you can engage with us and sending us your questions. The website's name is calvarychristianfellowship.com and if you click on the watch live tab, it's in the purple bar at the top of the screen, you'll be sent to our streaming page which again is owned and operated by us. ccf dot church. obviously they can't ban us on our own platform yet. So if you go there and you aren't given prior notifications because We're not streaming on other platforms. That will be how that will be amended. Any of these social media platforms will, of course, give you access to our email address spelled out for you at the bottom of the screen, as well as while you're there, the chance to, as we're live, leave your questions in the chat box on the right-hand side of the screen. That's true for Facebook, YouTube, and our website. But if you are, say, listening to previous broadcasts or a best of, note that the comment sections are also open and available, and on our website, you can contact us. Just notify that it's a question for a reason, for hope, and we'll... Make sure it gets mentioned here. Three uh, standards for the questions that we'll be answering on the broadcast. First of all, they have to be questions. (laughs) In the form of a question, like Jeopardy! (laughs) Yeah, they have to be sincere, and of course, they have to be concerning the Bible. Now note, the question mentioning the Bible, but ultimately going in a direction other than the Bible, is not a Bible question. The substance of a Bible question is that the answer is found within Scripture. We also welcome religions that are hostile to the Christian faith. As you may recall yesterday, we went a bit into Zoroastrianism and other interesting topics, but the point of emphasis for this broadcast is to equip you for a reason for the hope that is within you. So note that as the primary goal. We do take the time and respect other belief systems than our own to make sure we're informed on those matters, but we want to make sure that the ministry's purpose is clarified for all of you, so feel free to take advantage of those things as you are able. All that of course being said if we're going to give any insight or answer concerning god's word it's helpful to involve god and on the process yes so why don't we
1: take a moment to pray and ask him to be a part of it yeah scripture says we have not because we ask not so let's not fall into that trap let's ask the lord to bless the program father what a blessing to be able to gather here today and to talk about your word uh, lord we pray that the questions that are raised uh, that you would move upon the hearts of our listeners uh, and viewers, Lord, uh, that uh, you would minister uh, to us through those, that you would guide the discussion into whatever parts of your divinely inspired word you'd like us to explore. We pray, Father, that people be edified, built up in their knowledge of you, that they'd be exhorted, Lord, they'd be uh, given the opportunity to discover how to apply the truths of your word, even to the most personal issues of their life. And, Father, even more, they'd be comforted by knowing that the reason you reveal these things to us is your way of beckoning us to yourself, that you want us to experience the warmth of your love and the joy and the peace that we can find in the shadow of your wings. May you minister in and through us during this time. And as a reason for a family, may we walk away from this hour uh, built up, blessed, and edified. In Jesus' name, amen. That is true. Now, starting off the... Topic that we're, I guess, going to be getting
0: the broadcast today is an email question from Janice, who uh, I guess has been given some Roman Catholic material. Here's why. Uh, the question is, are there eight Beatitudes of Jesus? There are actually nine. But uh, she wants to know if we could name each one tonight. If there's time, she would like to have those in her notes and written down, also a good resource for future reference. Um uh, large print preferred. We both sympathize. But the uh, resource that you got the eight Beatitudes from is not a Christian one, and I say that without fear of controversy. Let's start with the Christian resource that we want to make sure we always begin with, that is the Bible.
1: Matthew chapter 5. The setting of this is the Sermon on the Mount, Uh, is Matthew's uh, uh, gospel. Yeah, barring his uh, initial Galilean ministry, this is the uh, first recorded message that we have of Jesus. Some have called it the manifesto of the kingdom of God that he lays out. And it's very interesting. Uh, he said, seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, was seated uh, with his disciples, his disciples' kingdom, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then we could add verse 11. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, um, when people were sort of hanging on Jesus' every word, uh, they'd heard of his miracles, they'd seen that John the Baptist, no less an individual with that kind of heft and uh, influence in Jewish culture had pointed to Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, uh, that he told uh, people that he must uh, increase and I must decrease, that uh, he wasn't even worthy to uh, unlatch Jesus' sandal, well, you better believe people were waiting to find out what Jesus had to say uh, regarding uh, his messiahship, regarding the presence of God's kingdom. So it's fascinating that the first word that comes out of Jesus' mouth regarding this is the word blessed, literally it's makarios. It carries the idea of supreme happiness, believe it or not. And I think it's kind of a fascinating thing that uh, in a world where most people think that God comes into our lives uh, desperately looking for somebody who's having a good time or enjoying themselves, and by golly, he's going to put an end to it. The first thing that Jesus said is, no, God wants you to be supremely happy. And again, this is a uh, inference back to Psalm 16, where we are told uh, that in God's presence is fullness of joy and at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. God doesn't want to spoil your happiness. He wants to give you the real deal. However, this pathway to true happiness is a little bit different than the one that the world or people that don't know God tend to imagine, isn't it?
0: Yeah, and when we're, again, talking about these issues, it's, of course— flipping on what the culture expects. You expect people who are supremely happy, which is what beatitude means, this consummate fulfillment of joy or happiness. The point that Jesus is making is our priorities, which he'll go on at the end of this chapter and in the next, to emphasize is our priorities are too much on this world and not on our status before God. The right relationship we have with God, the status of our need for a right relationship with God, these are all the things that are being emphasized, and if we allow these, I'd hesitate to even say well-intended because I don't know, but I guess resources that have taken the time to at least count the number of times without finishing the section of Scripture. Also note the same themes are repeated by Jesus in another context. In the Gospel of Luke chapter 6 and verse 20, he makes another series of Beatitudes, but there are only four, and again notice the same list of themes. Blessed are you, poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, now, as opposed to, for you shall, future tense, be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you and when they exclude you. Notice the beatitude that was left out in the ninth, that was in Matthew 5. And revile you and cast out your name as evil, here's the key, for the son of man's sake. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for indeed your reward is great in heaven, for in like manner their fathers did to the prophets. So just like with before, we don't see eight Beatitudes, Jesus only mentions three, and in the nine Beatitudes that we see him mention in Matthew chapter 5, they're all centered around the same principle, that we shouldn't find our contentment, our purpose, our peace in this life, in the here and now today. So if we then take a step back and ask, okay, instead of numbers, what's the words. <laughs> Instead of focusing on the math, let's focus on the message. What is Jesus talking about? Well, the Beatitudes are introducing what is essentially going to culminate at the end of chapter 5 with the description of his own character. Therefore, you shall be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now, this is why the humorous tone, Janice, has been oftentimes said. The Beatitudes are more like the I'm notitudes because we honestly look at Ourselves in light of this list and say, no, I, I do kind of prefer to be full now rather than to find desire in the future. I'd would rather be happy now than mourn over my sinful right. state. I'd rather justify myself than seek some sort of redemption, and on it goes. So, if this is in fact the case, and if we properly handle this section of Scripture, we can either read ourselves into it and be spiritually puffed up, proud, and self-righteous. Or we could note this not as a list of requirements, but an overview of Jesus's own character, what he will one day conform us into, and what we are called to model. Because again, just like beatitude, the definition of the word is important, Christian is also important. It was introduced in Antioch as originally a derogatory term, but the Christians embraced it and understood, yes, that's exactly what we're trying to do, be like Christ.
1: Little Christian. Little Christ, literally, is what it means.
0: And that's the emphasis of Matthew 5 through 7, as well as Luke chapter 6. This is Christ. This is the character of the one we're called to model. This is goodness personified. This is the glory of the only begotten of the Father. So avoid, and I know every single uh, student of uh, any field of study is going to rejoice when I say this, less math, (laughs) more... I was told there'd
1: be no math. Yes.
0: Focus on what the point is being made. And overall, in this section of Scripture, Jesus isn't giving us a chart to check off our virtues. It's a list, and a comprehensive list, of his characteristics and priorities, which all center around, like Luke said, three themes— not an expectation for satisfaction in this life, in a physical or a spiritual sense, not a sense of emotional satisfaction or contentment in this life, but in the next, and not a sense of social contentment or satisfaction in this life, but in the next. You want your approval, your satisfaction, and your peace to all come from the Father. That's what sets Jesus apart from everyone else on the planet.
1: Yeah, Uh, and you know, another interesting way Uh, to take a look at it, especially in Matthew chapter 5, that I always found helpful, is that there's really three things about the kingdom that Jesus is introducing to people at this point. And boy, talking about the kingdom and what the kingdom was all about, you know, it's fascinating to me. I'm reading Chuck Smith's uh, commentary on the book of Acts right now, and uh, one of the things that Luke points out is that the 40 days that Jesus spent after his resurrection, he spent teaching his disciples about the kingdom of God and what that was all about, what it means to be, in a sense, a citizen of God's kingdom. How can we be a part of God's forever family, if you will? And uh, one of the the interesting ways of looking at the Beatitudes here in Matthew chapter 5 is to see it in that light. You know, here we see, first of all, how you enter into the kingdom of God. And uh, it's almost a preview of coming attractions, because in the different interactions Jesus is going to have with people, uh, he's going to play on this same theme. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Uh, The word poor there uh, is a word that doesn't just describe someone who's a little short, Uh, who can only afford basic cable instead of the whole package. Uh, It's a word that was describing a beggar uh, and, uh, boy, Middle Eastern begging poverty, poverty uh, of the ultimate uh, degree. Uh, The the first thing that we need to have under our belt if we're going to come into the kingdom of God is realizing uh, that uh, we can't get there by our own resources. We can't buy our way in. We can't perform our way in. Uh, We simply have to acknowledge the fact that we are in desperate need of God's amazing grace. Grace being unmerited favor, the people who receive it realize something. If God doesn't intervene in this whole mess, uh, we are uh, beat before we start. There's no way that we belong in the kingdom of God. So those who are poor in spirit, notice it doesn't say poor financially. There's nothing inherently uh, ennobling about being poor uh, but financially. But if you come to God with a poverty of spirit, of saying, Lord, uh, my only hope is that you would have mercy on me. Well, then you're going to find mercy. Blessed are those... Who mourn for they shall be comforted. Well, the idea of mourning there doesn't mean necessarily the mourning over a lost one. It, it means not only uh, acknowledging your spiritual poverty, but uh, being personally broken over the fact that we ourselves are the ones who put us in this spiritually bankrupt condition, that we can't blame it on other people or excuse it or compare our righteousness with others. No, instead, we are broken over it. That's what First John 1 9 is all about when it says we confess our sins. He's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins. In other words, if we say the same thing about our sin that God does, then he's going to receive us. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The idea of being meek means strength under control. When we come to God and we realize that uh, on the one side of the coin, we have no resources here, but in Christ Jesus, we can do all things through him who strengthens us. In him, we have the very resources of heaven. That idea of meekness, of trusting in God, of uh, not trying to make our own way in this world, but trusting the Lord's will for our lives, very, very powerful. It says you're going to inherit the earth. Boy, so many people try to inherit the earth through their own power. Here, you see, if we step back and say, Lord, uh, all I want out of this life is from you, uh, then we're going to be blessed. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. This is the second part uh, that we're moving into, not just the entrance into the kingdom, but the expectation of what we can uh, look forward to when we're in the kingdom, that God's going to do a work within our lives where we hunger and thirst for that right relationship with him. That becomes something that is as important to us as the water we drink and the food that we eat. Uh, You know, blessed are those who are merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Well, the dead giveaway, if you've received uh, the mercy of God, is that's going to affect the way you look at others. And blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now, I don't know anybody who can say that they are pure in heart. The only way that we can be pure in heart is if God purifies our heart through the process by which he makes us like Christ. And this is a picture of that sanctifying work that he does within our lives. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. In other words, we not only receive this great relationship with God, but because we've received it, we want to share it as well. We want to be those who preach the gospel of peace. That is, uh, those of us who are on the outs from God, we were his enemies, uh, we were children of wrath, and now have been reconciled to him. And finally, blessed are those who are persecuted. This is the expectation of the kingdom of God. And I think this is probably one of the biggest mind-blowers, is that people uh, in Jesus' day and like our day, we're looking for their best life now. Uh, they expected that if they gave their life to the Lord, that they'd be on easy street. But what Jesus was saying is, you know what? You're going to experience resistance. You can expect this to happen. You're going to see it in my life. You're going to experience it in your own. And he, he goes on to say, there's a reason why you can persevere while you experience this kind of rejection in this world. Blessed are those uh, are, are you when they revile and persecute you and say, I kind of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. First reason to rejoice, what? We got a reward in heaven. Secondly, we're in really good company. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The old saw about uh, man's known not just by his friends, but also by his enemies is what Jesus was getting at here. And and if you look at the rest of the ministry of Jesus, the reason I kind of went in depth with all of that, you look at the rest of the ministry of Jesus going forward with that lens in mind, maybe even having the Beatitudes written out, and you see the different encounters that Jesus had with people, and you see the different miracles that Jesus did, and you see the different uh, dialogues and uh, messages that Jesus shared, boy, you can almost tick off the list. Uh, He is, in a sense, reiterating all of the principles that he sets forth as foundational right here in the Beatitudes. So, really uh, important thing for us to have under our belt as believers.
0: All right. A question from Isaiah, who wants to know... Uh, why does Jesus say the Father is the only true God in John seventeen three? Short answer: He doesn't finish the verse, but he also follows through in saying the Holy Spirit isn't mentioned when Jesus says no one knows the day or the hour of his return. Did the Holy Spirit not know that? uh, Why was he left out of that passage? Thank you. Yeah, Isaiah, we need to be very, very careful with three main mistakes. The first mistake that people make is thinking that doctrine should entirely be encapsulated in one verse. There is more than one page and one sentence in this Bible, (laughs) and that's how we come to conclusions with. It. Yeah. We need more information, not sections of verses. Because if I read John seventeen three, I call the bluff of the Unitarian cultist, who is not a Christian, by the way. They're denying a fundamental doctrine of what defines Christianity. Yeah, we
1: keep that bar really low, by the way, as far as the non-negotiables go. But one of the non-negotiables, as far as being a Christian or not a Christian, is what the belief that God is as he's revealed himself in
0: Scripture, that he is unique from his creation in that there is, fact number one, one and only one God. Right. That is not where the conversation ends. There are also, fact number two, things that only God can truthfully say about himself, creator of the universe, maintainer of life, etc., etc. Judge of all the earth, the one who
1: raises the dead. So if
0: someone were to claim that about themselves and not be lying, they would either be God, or they would be lying. The third fact is that there are some interesting persons, not beings, persons, identities, centers of consciousness, take of what you will, but these persons that are claiming those rights for themselves. In Isaiah 64 and verse 8, I believe, the Father is noted as the creator of Israel as a potter is to the clay. We could note that Jesus is credited as the creator, God the Son. In John chapter 1 and Colossians chapter 2, we could note the Spirit is called creator in Job 33 and 34, as well as in Genesis chapter 1. The Spirit of God was the one hovering over the waters in this maintaining work, as he says, let there be light, and on it goes. But then we're told in Isaiah forty-eight sixteen, this is fact number 4, in Mark chapter 1 and verse 9, and plenty of others, that there are distinctions between these persons, that they are able to act independently from one another. Right. And Isaiah notes that the God-speaking the God was sent by God and his Spirit. We note in the baptism of Jesus that Jesus was in the water when the Father spoke from heaven as the Spirit descended upon him as a dove. Jesus didn't transform into a dove and speak over where he formerly was, saying, "'You are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased.'" That's just silly. So note, those four facts are what made us need to come up with a term called the the doctrine of the Trinity. And if I take only the first third of John 17, 3, and say, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, Jesus speaking to his Father in the full context, verse 1, Ryan. we'll clarify that, then stop the verse-full stat. Well, that just doesn't make sense linguistically, let alone doctrinally. If I continue reading, where Jesus goes on to say, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent... No eternal life is to what? No God. Right. And if that is in fact the case, then what is Jesus saying? He's equating himself as God with the Father. Yeah, interesting
1: if- a bit of a Bible trivia here, if I can interject. Uh, there is a lesson, uh, there's a principle in, in Greek called the Granville Sharp Rule, where a particular structure in Greek uh, will uh, denote an equality. Uh, Like, for instance, in the book of Ephesians, chapter 4, where it talks about pastors and teachers. Uh, The Granville-Sharp rule would indicate that a pastor is a teacher. You know, that there's an equality here. It's not, you have some who are pastors and others who are teachers. They're the same. The Granville-Sharp rule also applies to John, chapter 17, and verse 3. This is eternal life that may know you, the only true God, and... Jesus Christ, the one whom you'd sent. The structure here equates the one true God with Jesus, whom the Father set. So and doctors Jesus, of the Trinity.
0: And Jesus isn't the Father. Yeah. So note, why are we saying that God is three beings in one being? No, we were very careful to define that. One being, three persons. My being is not my person, and it's not impossible for there to be two persons. Now note, it's unique. We don't have an example of that anywhere in nature, and people who say the Trinity is like have already made a mistake. Fingernails on the chalkboard. (laughs) But if we're going to talk about this issue, understand categorically, and saying, well, if Jesus is submitting to the Father, how can he be God, the highest authority? Well, let's apply it to the here and now. Not as an illustration of the Trinity, but a showing of how that's categorically misrepresenting what we're talking about. Is God who Jesus is or what he is? Are be, we describing him in substance or in category? What type of being he is or who he is in identity?
1: Well, it would be uh, who he is in, uh,
0: in uh, substance. So the substance of Jesus is deity. The right. identity of Jesus is God the Son. The substance of you and I, are we human beings or are we
1: lizards? Uh, last time I checked... We're human beings. But we are different
0: persons. If I make a distinction between my person and my being, I haven't made a category error. I haven't violated any law of linguistics, Greek or English. Those are two different things. I can say we are both human. I can even say that we have different relationships with each other. You as my father and me as your son. You as my boss, me as an employee. I submit to your authority, but that in no way makes me less human than you.
1: Yeah, it's the the old saw about uh, just because a person is a general in the army uh, and he's interacting with a private doesn't mean that the general is some higher uh, advanced form of human being than the private. They're both human beings. They simply have different rank.
0: So then taking this ball of Plato and putting it into the mold, is Jesus, in submitting to the Father, less God than he is? No, No, he's less Father than he is. That's why he's called the Son. But what he is is not the same as who he is. So understand that while God is unique and he's allowed to be, these clarifications are made plain in Scripture. If you presuppose, meaning before the conversation starts, you say, this is true, when the Bible says the opposite, then it's going to get confusing, especially if you only read one-third of the verse. Right. But if, on the other hand, you continue and note Jesus equates himself with the Father and goes on to say in the passage, "...glorify me with the glory which I had with you since time began." Jesus claims to be eternal, which God can only be, and to be worthy of the glory of God, which God can only have. What does Jeremiah say? "...my glory I will not give to another." Right. Who then could claim the glory of God except God? What he is, but God the Son." who he is. Yeah, and, so, and, th- and
1: this is why we teach the doctrine of the Trinity. It's not because it's easy. No. <laughs> yeah, you know, if you've just been listening to this uh, explanation, you know that you have to cover a lot of bases to accurately describe the doctrine of the Trinity. The reason we teach it is not because it's easy, but because it takes into account all of the truth statements that we find in Scripture regarding the nature of God. Uh, just two examples. You know, you cited uh, Mark chapter one, the baptism of Jesus, where we see the distinction of persons in the Trinity. We have Jesus being baptized, the Holy Spirit descending like a dove from heaven, the Father speaking from heaven, "This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased." But then we go over to Matthew chapter 28 and verse 18, where we see, "All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name." Singular of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Notice it doesn't say names. Why doesn't it say names? Because it's describing not what they are, but who they are. Right. So, you know, here you have those two passages. And the reason we teach the doctrine of the Trinity is that the doctrine of the Trinity is shorthand that takes these true statements about God into account without distorting one or the other you know, bless their hearts, you run into people that, uh, you know, say get involved with oneness, Pentecostalism, uh, or uh, all kinds of uh, Unitarian kind of ideas. About God, modalism is another one that says that you know, well, you know, sometimes uh, you know, I'm a I'm a father, and sometimes uh, in a family get together, I relate as a son, and and uh, when uh, I'm uh, at work, I'm an employer, and you know, it's just Jesus is God, but he's just putting on different hats. Sometimes he wears the father hat and all this stuff. It, that is an oversimplification and a distortion of what the Scripture says. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the the Father. They're distinct in person. We see this continually through Scripture, but we also see affirmed they are one in unity as God. You know, and you know, we we push on this, and we try to make it... you You mentioned the idea about saying... Someone says, oh, well, you know, the Trinity is like... Well, first of all, God is absolutely unique. You know, there are certain, I guess, illustrations you can look at in this world that might help you, in a sense, get a little bit of a, a grip on how that's possible. Yeah, spiritual gifts, for example. Can we love like God loves? Yes, through His
0: Spirit. Apart from Him, we can't, but that is possible through us. However, none of us will ever be
1: eternal, create from nothing, and on it goes. Yeah, we're, we're distinct in that in that sense. So, you know, if someone comes up to you and says, I think I got it figured out, uh, you know, it always reminds me of that analogy I use about uh, being in uh, trig uh, when I was in school. I was never good at math, and we were having this test, and boy, I just zipped through it, you know, and I thought it was the easiest test we ever had uh, until I realized, uh, I finished in about 20 minutes, and until I looked around, I realized that some of my classmates were going to go on to Ivy League schools were obviously a lot better at math than I ever was, were still working feverishly on this test. So I went back, and I checked my work and looked around, and they were still working feverishly on this test. And finally the uh, bell rang, and uh, we turned in our papers, and I was forced to come to one of two conclusions. Either I was the Mozart of math, and I was a prodigy, and I didn't realize how brilliant I was in math, or I missed something. And when I got my test back, I realized something. I missed something. I oversimplified. I, I failed to take into account the, the the real issue here. So sometimes we do have to take a step back, and let's face it, if in the Bible we are dealing with the true and living God, the one who created all things, uh, the, 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 I look at his creation and I can't wrap my mind around it, let alone the creator, there's chances are going to be a few things that are going to stretch our brains a little bit. Yeah. wouldn't you say?
0: Yeah, and the same is true for the Spirit. For example, if we expect from every passage to mention every member of the Godhead, this would not only be ridiculous, but we might even be suspicious that they're trying to introduce something new. If, on the other hand, it's self-evident, then we need to, once again, not settle for a third of a verse. When Jesus speaking about no man knowing the day or the hour, not the angels of heaven, but the Father only, and then on, on again in Acts chapter 1, where he says, will you now restore the kingdom to Israel? Notice we're already in Acts to clarify and emphasize this principle. Jesus said, it is not given to you, to know the things which the Father has put in his own authority." Well, the question was, and again Isaiah asked it, is the Holy Spirit not aware of the day or the hour? Well, we're emphasized the Father's put this in his own authority. The passage in and of itself doesn't emphasize ongoingly that Jesus is unaware of the day or the hour, but the Father will dictate it. There's some question about the language and noting that no man knows it means to have been given to reveal. Um, The Father alone will reveal that in His own time. The Son, though knowing the day or the hour, some assume, does not reveal that. That's one possible theory. And then the Evidence to emphasize that is again in Acts chapter 1, where Jesus says it's not given to you. He makes no denial of himself. But regarding the Spirit, I think this will settle the issue pretty straightforwardly. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and let me start in verse 10. But God has revealed them to us, this is referring to the things of the gospel, through his Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God for what man That's pretty kno- powerful, yeah. yeah for what man knows the things of man except the spirit of that of the man which is in him so note first illustration he's making a contrast who knows the deep things of a man except the spirit of man right he knows everything about himself in so far as is reasonable but note he goes on then to say even so in light of the man illustration no one knows the things of god except the Spirit of God, now which we have received, and the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit of him who is from God, that we might know the things which have been freely given to us by God. So on top of a proof text, the deity of the Holy Spirit, knowing the mysteries of God, yeah, <laughs> something that only That's God can truthfully yeah. say about himself, and also noting as well the um, Revelation 20, or chapter 2 and verse 23, Jesus himself says this about himself, I am he who searches the minds and hearts to give you each one according to your deeds. And Jeremiah 17.10, the Father speaking, says, I the Lord search the heart, I judge the mind to give to each one according to his work. So note that equal... That's like a quote, isn't it? (laughs) Yes, but note that (laughs) same status. So the Spirit knows everything about God. We don't, but we've been given the Spirit so we could know the things of God now. Not everything, but enough to have a relationship with him, what's been revealed to us. I think that falls in the same lines of the first interpretation, but even if you take the most popular one that Jesus, in his human nature and his status as God the Son, submits to the Father's authority, not to say he isn't all-knowing, but to say he is acknowledging his Father's authority. That's reconciling this. If you want to get into the hypostatic union and how to spell that, let me know. But the point being made is this. The Spirit doesn't have to be mentioned in every passage regarding the Trinity for the Trinity to be taught, because the Bible's more than one verse. If we want to know what to expect, we need to know what to look for. Are the rules fair, and are they consistently applied? Is there one God? Yes, plenty of passages would say that, start in Isaiah 44 through 48. If you want to know, are there things only God can say for himself and be honest? Well, yes, you can read the first chapter of the first book of the Bible and <laughs> note, that is something only God can say. If then you read the Bible in its entirety, all the verses, not just one or two, handed to you by a cultist at a swap meet who demonizes and dehumanizes his own children, true story he will have trouble because these things are applied to characters by the names of Father, Son, and Spirit. Then what happens? The Father, Son, and Spirit aren't the same person. They're able to act independently from one another. So how do we harmonize this? We emphasize being is not the same as person. God is not the same as exclusively Father, Son, or Spirit. They all share that identity. Yeah. But if on the other hand we're going to say, well, that doesn't make sense to me. It doesn't have to. But you can still define it. I'm, I'm not good with calculus. Never took the time to learn that. Doesn't mean that it's false. Doesn't mean that it should be simple or it's untrue. That's ridiculous. The point being made is that. Oh, the word Trinity is not in the Bible. True, but the word omnipresent isn't in the Bible. It's an accurate summation of what we read throughout the Bible regarding God's nature not being bound by space. That's the point. If we believe the Trinity, we believe the Bible. If we deny the Trinity, we deny the Bible. That's two strikes out of a one-strike system and you're out. But if on the other hand we'd say, I don't get it, that's allowed. But fundamentally denying it, or even worse, assuming it is to be false, and then reading the Bible, that's going to lead you to worshiping and believing in a fake Jesus, which yeah, is not and, what we want for you.
1: And an, an approaching God's Word with a spirit of humility is never a bad thing. Uh, if we encounter uh, a few passages that are head-scratchers, it probably just means we're paying attention. Hey, interesting follow-up yeah, uh, Father from, of Eternity, from, from Lynn. Uh, it says, uh, well, on the subject of the Trinity, could you explain uh, Isaiah 9 6, where God is referred to as the Ever, or the Son is referred to as the Everlasting Father? Yeah. A beautiful prophecy there, Lynn. Uh, there we are told, for unto us a child is born, unto us a Son is given, and the government shall rest upon his shoulders, and he shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Almighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Now, those uh, who Uh, will challenge the doctrine of the Trinity, will say, well, um, Jesus is called the Everlasting Father here, the modalists, if you will, the Jesus-only Pentecostals. will use that as a proof text. They'll even
0: double-check it by going to the Gospel of John, where Jesus speaking
1: says, I and the Father are one. Yeah. So what is this uh, Everlasting Father all about? Well, like you mentioned, Sean, the actual rendering in the Hebrew is the Father— uh... or literally the creator the author of the ages or literally of eternity uh... and so when we understand that uh... and see it in its uh... its i guess more narrow linguistic context what that scripture is saying is the same thing that john chapter one uh... tells us that uh... jesus was the one who created nothing that was created uh... was not created by him including all of the various ages that have gone on the beginning of the universe onwards. So in that sense, he is the father of the ages, literally the author and initiator of eternity.
0: And in the same way, when we look at John 10 and verse 30, it says, I and my Father are one. Does this mean Jesus is the Father? Well, let's take a few steps back and note the whole conversation, since that was the end of a sentence. It says in verse 25, Jesus answered them when they were challenging him, If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. He said, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But you do not believe, because you are not of my sheep. As I said to you, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Now, this is key to the topic. Understand, we only had to go back five verses to read the whole sentence in its context. That's really important. What is Jesus about to talk about? The ownership of God's people and his flock. So note this, verse 28. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. So the permanent status the uh, perseverance of the saints, if you will, right? right? The fact that no one will take those who belong to Jesus from him. My Father, who has given them to me... So notice, we only have to go one verse back to note there's a distinction made between Jesus and the Father in person. So then what's the substance of this? It's, my Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Wait, didn't Jesus just say no one snatches them out of his hand? Yeah. So what is the Father and Jesus? What are the Father and Jesus? One in. The fact that no one will snatch them out of his hand. That's the topic. But if on the other hand, we take a fragment of a conversation one verse out of its context the conclusion of something without the explanation well then the teacher's going to say you cheated show your work what's the equation what's he talking about is this addition is this subtraction is this long division or did you just look at the back of the book for the answer jesus's statement i and the father are one isn't saying they're the same person otherwise grammatically it would be i and the father is one But if, on the other hand, we go two verses back and note this compilation of ideas, no one will snatch them out of my hand. No one snatches them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. That makes a little bit more sense about what he's talking about than to say they're the same person. And in the same way, Isaiah 9, 6, the language needs a little bit of homework to be done, but if you check that interpretation, oh, Jesus is the Father, then how is he praying to himself?
1: Might want to look this up. That's how you avoid those errors. Yeah, and, and uh, it, again, it uh, illustrates the uh, main theme that we've been exploring here. Uh, we don't believe the doctrine of the Trinity because it's easy or it's simple. Uh, we believe it because it's true, because it takes all of these verses into account. So. And because when you encounter the people who fundamentally
0: and vehemently deny it, you see just how far from God's heart they end up being. So avoid that, too. Yeah, a little, uh, little edgy about all that. But, yeah. Yes. All right. Yeah. Um, here's our contradiction for the day. Uh, does the Bible contradict itself? Obviously, if this is the case, then it can't be trusted as an authority for truth. But uh, I guess that when you call them on their bluff and ask them, where does the Bible contradict itself, they either do don't know what a contradiction is, or don't look up the text, they say contradict one another. This is the contradiction. Are people who aren't with Jesus against him? So, are people who aren't with us against us? Apparently, the Bible is contradicting itself on this matter. In Luke chapter 11 and verse 23, now no, we don't even have to go to the verses. I'm just reading their summations of this. Luke 11 and verse 23 says, those who are not with Jesus are against him. Okay, so if you aren't with Jesus, you're against him, right? In Luke chapter 9 and verse 50, it says those who are not against Jesus are with him. So if you're not against Jesus, then you're with him. If you're against Jesus... Yeah,
1: it doesn't even make any sense.
0: So when it comes to these contradictions, there is two key steps when dealing with them. first is obviously to listen. It's the first step in our rhetoric classes and how to talk to people. But if they make the claim, well, I'm not going to trust the Bible, it's full of contradictions. The first thing to do is to know what a contradiction is, because if they point something out and it's not that thing, they didn't point that out to you. That's just plain English. When someone says the contradictory passages, they're saying that it violates the second formal law of logic, A does not equal non-A. The law of non-contradiction means that two things in the same way and in the same sense can't both be true and at the same time cancel each other out. If the Bible contradicts itself on these themes, no, not mistranslations, not misrepresenting two passages, not even misrepresenting one passage and forcing it and your interpretation thereof against the other, regardless of what it was actually saying, a contradiction is that two things are fundamentally canceling themselves out, ideally. Now, if the Bible were to contradict itself on this matter, it would say those who are against Jesus are for him and those who are against Jesus are against him. Right. But this passage doesn't say those who are against Jesus aren't for him, and then goes on to say the opposite. It literally says, in a separate category entirely, if you're not against Jesus, you're with him. And we can go to the passages, which is the second step, call their bluff, and ask does this actually contradict each other? Maybe go one verse forward or one verse back. Maybe ask, who is he saying this to? Who was saying this to begin with? Because note, the Bible does give quotations from Satan from time to time. I yeah. hopefully would yeah. say the yeah. Bible teaches that you will not surely die in Genesis chapter three, but in Genesis chapter two, God said, well, the day you eat of it, dying you shall die. Um, One was from Satan and was lying. Yes. And it says the serpent deceived Eve in that sentence. Yeah. Those are the things we need to look for. So if you encounter these sort of things, first of all, they're not, they're not intelligent. I'll just say it honestly. Most of these things are counting on you just to take their word for it. But if you're even willing to read their summary descriptions let alone look up the passages they claim are in conflict, you're not going to have an issue. But no, you can have confidence that the Bible has stood on its feet a lot longer than these people have even been above ground. Yeah. And of course, as they oftentimes say, it's the anvil that has worn out many hammers of skepticism. We can be content with that. Uh, any uh, questions on your end? Or yeah, uh, yeah,
1: interesting question here from uh, Michael. Why does God create people uh, when he knows that they're eventually going to end up in hell? Why does God create people knowing they'll
0: eventually be in hell? Well, I guess that's making an assumption about God does God create things because it's the most efficient thing to do? Does God create people because it's the most beneficial thing for them? Or is there something else going on here? When we're told about God's motives in creation, it's for his glory. But noting that point, how is God glorified? One of two ways, both of which are through our decisions. Read Romans 9-11. through 11. A vessel for wrath, or vessel for honor, or in our case, mercy. Right. If we receive mercy, God's glorified through what He's done for us, because God didn't just create us and distance Himself from us, He involves Himself daily, personally, and intimately in our lives to draw us to fellowship with Him. That is when we have a choice to make. We can either resist it, which is our decision, our fault, or we can receive Him, which is also our decision, our success. Why? Because it allows us to demonstrate aspects of God's character. If people reject his mercy and do so continuously, proactively, vehemently, passionately, and on the thesaurus will go, then you are rightfully an object of wrath, because we've all done things deserving of death before God. But if God were to set up this system where we're going, you know, I would have... We're already in a state of complete arrogance and blasphemy, saying that we would do things better than God. Uh, William Lane Craig of uh, Reasonable Faith, I believe his website is, uh, get a good description of this. You can check out his videos on this, explaining it in more detail. There were four kinds of worlds that God could have created. He could have created no world, thus no possibility for evil, no one going to hell, because no one exists apart from him and his goodness. Efficient. The second possibility is he were to create a world with no will. The angels and everything in it would literally be automatons. The only capacity for all of creation would be to reflect his nature, but that wouldn't be creation, that would be expansion. He's just making a new version of himself. The third world God could have created, where justice was only emphasized, eliminates the possibility of evil, that everyone who rejects his mercy, that his nature, who sins in any way, is immediately taken out of the way, and the consequences are mitigated. Once again, that's fair, but that leaves no one in existence, because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Yeah, we'd all be out. The fourth world is the one we're living in, where he allows the opportunity for the greatest possible evil, evil itself, And at the same time, the greatest possible virtue, and that is not God's character of efficiency, not God's character of justice, but his character of love, a love that not only allows a second option to exist, see the tree in the garden, see our sinful nature every day, and God not smiteth in us, Yes. but at the same time as well, giving us the opportunity to willingly, voluntarily, and relationally reflect his nature of love, the unique aspect that makes God who he is. See the first epistle of John. This is how we know God, for God is love. And if you do not love your brother, then how does the love of God abide in him? On it goes to say. But here's the point. If we see this world and the risk God took in creating people he knew would reject him, is that cruelty on his part, well, only if you completely discount and ignore the resurrection of Jesus, because what had to happen first before he resurrected? The crucifixion. So we don't have a God—this is quoting John Lennox, the uh, mathematician and student from C- of uh, C.S. Lewis, by the way, who said, who distances himself from our pain, the pain we inflict on ourselves, by the way, right? but voluntarily— became a part of it. I think it was Josh McDowell who said that the only time uh, good bad things happened to a good person was once, and he volunteered. Uh, yeah, that was R.C. Sproul. R.C. Sproul. Yeah. But the point being made is this. If I assume, well, God needs to be like me and be the most efficient as possible, only create people who will love him, well, then you're kind of the creepy stalker girlfriend who's only allowing boyfriends to exist to return your advances. If, on the other hand, you're love by nature, you're going to allow the possibility of saying no and yes. But note, God can't violate his own nature. If he respects the opportunity to say no, freedom of choice isn't freedom from consequence. The same is also true in the good stat. We love good consequences, but we blame God for the consequences he himself literally spent all of the existence of this world warning us about. So note that point. If we miscategorize or assume ourselves and our fallen motives onto God, he seems a lot like us. But if on the other hand we take God at his word, what has he done to make that interpretation of his motives impossible? Well, the crucifixion would be a start. He saw all this world's evil, willingly entered into it, became a part of it to the point where he endured everything we deserved, yet deserving none of it. Experienced the worst of it. And then what? Used it to restore us, the undeserving rebels, these specks of dust that he is under no obligation to care about, yet chooses to anyway, in order to restore them back to not only fellowship with him, but glorification through him. That's a lot. So if I take all the facts on the table, then I don't get into this utilitarian mindset where God needs to be efficient. God needs to be himself, right. and we wouldn't want it any other way, because then we'd all be in hell or He wouldn't exist.
1: Yeah, and and the, the old, uh, you know, if God loves us, why question uh, inevitably brings us around the corner to a place where we're, ultimately asking God to love us less, right? Right, and he can't not be himself. Yeah, uh, you know, to, to say, for instance, that God would create a place in a universe where uh, wrong choices were impossible, uh, that means that right choices are just an illusion. Yep. So, you know, once again, we're asking God not to love us more in those circumstances, but actually we're asking God to love us less, and he cannot love you more, and he will not love you less. Yeah, I'm uh, prepping notes for our uh, next live stream discussing
0: biblical themes in TV shows and movies. Uh, we're going to be doing Transformers in the month of August. As uh, Optimus Prime says, freedom is the right of all sentient beings. God shares that sentiment. Yeah.
1: <laughs> there you go. <laughs>
0: all right, um, here's a question from Kathy. I think we'll have time. Uh, can you break down the Genesis 3 curse on woman of sorrow and pain and childbirth uh, regarding the curse on Eve? and also the logical aspect of uh, Eve's curse to Adam. I think what she's referring to uh, relationally, so your desire shall be for him, what's that all about?
1: Yeah, that, that's that's a biggie. Well, Genesis chapter 3 tells us that decisions have consequences. And uh, when man decided to rebel against God, listen to the serpent, the consequences were forthcoming. Uh, We are told that uh, then the eyes of both of them were open, referring to Adam and Eve, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Uh, First, we're seeing alienation central break out. Man First, first of all, alienated from each other and then alienated from God. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, where are you? Now, that was not because God lacked the knowledge or a GPS or a GoPro or a drone to figure out where they'd run off to. Or sin somehow made them invisible to God's sense. What did he mean when he said,
0: where are you? Well, he was giving them the opportunity, like every parent, to come forward. Why
1: are you hiding? Yeah. So, he, so the, he said, I heard your voice in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, that you should not eat? Once again, did God need this information? Was no. he seeking an answer? No. He was dealing with his kids. Then the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I ate finger-pointing 101 enters the human experience. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you've done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. Well, again, the first curse goes to the serpent. Then God says to the woman, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now, there are those that will say, well, you know, even though childbirth would be a painful thing, God would still give the drive to procreate. But that's a pretty superficial rendering of this passage. In fact, a very interesting insight into this is uh, when we talk about your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you uh, goes to Genesis chapter 4. What do we find there?
0: Cain being given the desire from sin to want to, I guess, express bitterness towards his brother. We saw it was manifest through murder, the first murder,
1: by the way. And God warns Cain by saying, sin's crouching at the door. And its
0: desire is for you.
1: Yeah, but you must master it. In other words, you're going to either have a mastered or master relationship with sin. Over any desire.
0: Because note, it wasn't as if his anger was unjustified. There was distance between him and his fellowship with God. But if, on the other hand, we'd say, did how he acted on that knowledge fit the conviction? No, it didn't at all. He tried to resolve it through pride and through anger and through violence. But if, on the other hand, Cain had taken a hint and said, what's the difference between my brother's sacrifice and mine? I know. I'll ask him. Well, that was his opportunity. Instead, what did he say to God? i my brother's keeper. Yeah, That's exactly.
1: So bringing this back to what God said to the woman about your desire, it doesn't have anything to do with the desire to procreate or sexual desire. It has everything to do with the desire for position, the desire for being in a role that you really shouldn't be in, uh, that was at odds with how God created the family structure. And so when we see that and we understand that that same dynamic was now uh, coming into play in not just Adam and Eve's relationship, but virtually every relationship we enter into, including our relationship with God. This is how it works. God says, for instance, I want the man to be the spiritual head of the home. I want the woman to be his number one supporter, but be in that supportive role. We look at that and we go, well, we'll see about that. I don't think I like that. I want to do things my way. Well, inevitably, when we do things our way, it ends up being a huge mess. And it all goes back to that fall in the Garden of Eden. That's what that desire aspect was all about. Now, God has given us instructions for how to function in relationships in a way that is not only going to be most efficient, but most blessed. Will we listen or won't? And note, Adam was also given a
0: social and a physical curse as well, the curse of labor and weariness and futility, and of course, the other point as well. God bless you. God bless you.